Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.
Okay, today's good news story comes from the Good News Network, uh, as most of our good news stories do. It's just a great website, so go check out goodnewsnetwork.org, and you can find all sorts of very uh, happy-oriented news stories in this world of fear-based media. It's really good to get some some different perspectives. So, today's good news story, the title reads, South Korean scientists perfect renewable power from urine while cleaning wastewater. I thought this was extremely interesting. Let me uh, read some blurbs from the article to get, get you guys the information. Uh, South Korean scientists are leading a revolution in pea-powered fuel cells that generate clean energy and purify wastewater. A common organic molecule in fertilizer and a principal component of human urine, scientists achieve state-of-the-art performance using urea fuel cells built with inexpensive electrodes and without precious metals. Direct urea fuel cells, or DUFC, could turn any wastewater treatment plant into a renewable power station thanks to the development from the Korean Maritime and Ocean University. Uh, so that's pretty cool. These flexible energy generators offer, offer novel and unique ways to equip a house, a town, or a parish with renewable electricity that cuts down on the footprint and upkeep of other infrastructures. Utilizing a nickel and selenium anode and nickel microfoam, Professor Kyu Jung Che found inexpensive metal components to act as the catalyst in the DUFC facilitating critical chemical reactions that allow it to work, which up until now had been made only with precious metals like platinum. Several nickel-based catalysts were tested, and selenium was found to have a synergistic effect. Furthermore, when paired together with a cathode made from Prussian blue, they outperformed precious metals, creating the highest power densities ever found in a DUFC with nickel. Because urea fuel cells generate electricity while also helping in the treatment of urea-ridden wastewater, providing clean water in the process, they are a versatile option in remote places without access to a stable power grid, such as in rural areas, ships, or even aboard spacecraft. Across the ocean border, Japanese University is opting to try and turn number two, in quotations, number two, into the number one power source for its buildings. The invention of a toilet that composts human excrement and turns it into a methane biogas for use in the school's energy system has the students there reevaluating waste like never before, as the amount of waste they contribute to the electric bills is returned to them in the form of a digital currency. Oh man, so you get, you literally, uh, according to this, you get paid in cryptocurrency for taking a crap at your uh, school. If, you're, if your school is using this energy system, so they pay you back. That's pretty cool. Uh, on average, a human's daily excrement can generate around 0.5 kilowatt hours of electricity. Bacteria breaks down the feces of student and faculty alike, and biomethane produced as a bioproduct is channeled into a solid oxide fuel cell, which powers several building functions, such as the hot water heater. So cool. I, used, I remember back in the day... Uh, uh, Myself and other people included sometimes didn't like using the restrooms at school, so we would oftentimes, uh, you know, hold it till the end of the day till we got home or go to a gas station or, you know, find um, find some other bathroom. But uh, with this sort of plan in place where they pay you for your waste and then it goes back into the grid, uh, I think it's going to make more students... Um, hold in their bio breaks, their bathroom breaks, until they get to school because they'll want to get paid for that. So that is very interesting, interesting stuff. Um, great. 
So, what has been on my mind lately? And this is going to be a short one, uh, just something that I've been thinking about lately. And I um, was recently looking at, at images of uh, spacemen. Um, so there's this common, um, this common visual art that's used in uh, the field of psychedelics, or not even uh, scientific field of psychedelics, but in mainstream media as well. It's this common iconography of a spaceman um, that represents the concept of a psychonaut. So a psychonaut is just somebody who uh, intentionally takes it upon themselves to explore their own psyche. So they're sort of an astronaut of their innerverse. And uh, I, I definitely consider myself one of those. I hope you do too. Um, by listening to this podcast, uh, you're either well on your way or you are just getting started or, you know, either way. That iconography is really special to me. And so I was just looking at um, looking at images of spacesuits. And the thought that came to my mind was, uh, you know, aren't we all just in a spacesuit already? Like, isn't this human body uh, in its own way like a spacesuit, right? Um, so we're in space. The Earth is in space. We're all part of space. And inside of our body is contained, you know, our nervous system, which a lot of people argue is really the only thing that truly makes us human is uh, a nervous system, some people would argue. Uh, but I would also say it, it you know, it contains our uh, metaphysical soul or self or um, our consciousness that may or may not continue after death. And so when I think about my consciousness this way as, uh, you know, some uh, some transparent, ethereal, you know, layer of who I am. Uh, you know, I think of the body also as another layer of who I am. I don't necessarily identify entirely with my body, which I think is healthy. <clears throat> um, and so the other day I was just thinking about like, you know, isn't isn't my human body a spacesuit for my soul? Uh, isn't my soul just using this body as a suit to be able to go out into the world of, of the earth or to go out into the universe in some way to physically experience it. Because um, we don't know. We don't even know if the soul is real. I, you know, I feel that it is. But if it is, we don't know if the soul, you know, has different perception or organs or, or different ways to perceive and, and therefore may not have the ability to interact, um, you know, in the same way that the human body does human body interacts with the world in a very specific way, in a very useful way uh, for our inner world to get shit done. And so really, you know, in this way, the body is a machine, the body is a tool. The body can be upgraded, it can be refined, it can be turned into something that works better for you. It can also be taken away from you in certain ways. Uh, functionality can be taken away. Functionality eventually leaves all of our spacesuits at the end of its life. So just got me thinking about, um, you know, a traditional spacesuit is an, is a material object. It's a, um, inanimate object. And it just got me thinking like, well, why is that just a spacesuit? Why can't a spacesuit also be an organic substance, something that is constantly changing and growing and adapting to its environment? Like, wouldn't that even be a more, uh, a more efficient or a more functional spacesuit. Even if we designed our, our NASA spacesuits to be somewhat organic in the, in a way so that whatever 
planet they went to, whatever uh, atmosphere they were going to be into, it could adapt and grow and make changes um, so that it actually uses less uh, maybe resources in the technical um, in the technical realm where yeah so I was just thinking about that I just thought that was an interesting thought so I thought I'd bring it to you all chew on that one for a little bit <clears throat> okay I also wanted to apologize to you all um, I haven't been getting these podcasts out as frequently as I like I'm actually backed up with a number of different <clears throat> interviews that I just need to put together and edit but just know that each one of these shows takes about eight to ten hours worth of work total to be able to get it out to you and right now uh it this is uh mid-fall time uh 2021 and i'm in the middle of my comprehensive exams for my phd program which we take after two years and uh if we don't pass these we don't move forward in the program so i am just steeped in uh literature right now and writing and you know, putting things together and uh, working on this exam, which is due in December. So I apologize if I haven't been able to put out podcasts, but I have had to make certain choices of how I, you know, uh, where I put my energy because this uh, this exam has a big deadline. So I apologize for that. And speaking of uh, my PhD program, let's get into our intro for today's guest. So today's guest is... A, good friend of mine, Shivani Kaushik. Now, she is a fellow PhD classmate of mine. Um, she's in the School of Social Work at Colorado State University. Um, she is our international student in our cohort. She hails from Canada. Um, she has 10 years experience in end-of-life care, end of life care as a medical social worker uh, prior to entering uh, the PhD program. And her primary focus of study, her primary interest in the program up to this point uh, has been end of life in correctional facilities. <clears throat> and we get into this a little bit, um, but really it is an understudied area and super important, right? Um, so many people die in the prison system um, and there's not much offered for them for, for grieving, for consoling, uh, for seeing family uh, before they pass away. Um, but Shivani has been researching end-of-life care just across the United States, and it varies quite differently between states, and certain states, uh, you know, if you're terminally ill, allow you to leave for a little bit and, and say goodbye to your family. Others do not. Um, so it's just been really interesting learning from her in the last few years um, that whole side of the world uh, that we don't necessarily see, right? Because it's behind closed doors and not, not many people give inmates uh, even a second thought. Um, so I really appreciate having Shivani on the show. Uh, it was a great show, so please enjoy. Um, I will put her contact information in the description below the podcast if you want to reach out to her. I'm going to put her... Um, I'm going to put her email address down there and uh yeah so you guys can reach out to her if you need to i also put a link to her uh student uh biography on the csu uh, web page okay that way you can see what she's all about and look into her research as well okay well without further ado let's get into the show let's get into the interview thank you for joining us on this ride through consciousness and uh, let's get into it. 
Okay, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shane Lamaster, and you are in the right place. This is episode 101, and we are here with very special guest, Shivani Kaushik, a fellow classmate of mine. How are you today? I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Um, you're, you are lucky to be out of Colorado right now. It is extremely hot outside and I hate the heat. Um, so I don't know what it's like right now in Vancouver, Canada, but uh, in Colorado, I'm miserable with the heat. So I'm staying indoors. No, it's uh, sadly, um, well, not sadly, but it is hot. It's quite humid. And unfortunately, um, as I'm sure, you know, Colorado experienced as well the air quality um, definitely not at its best with all of the fires going on but um, personally speaking I am very still excited to be home in Canada Um, it was quite um, well at least for me a bit of a wait and quite a journey but one that I have great gratitude for so um, yeah no definitely happy to be here but also having an opportunity to connect with you Um, yeah awesome well I definitely want to hear your stories of uh, you know the struggles you know, I heard bits and pieces throughout the, the last couple of years, the struggles in trying to get back home across the border. So I'm sure that that's uh, quite, the, quite the endeavor and quite the story. But um, the first question that I ask is the same question that I asked every guest. Um, and that is, um, you know, the, the podcast is called Conversations with the Mind. And um, so I'm wondering, you know, what does that phrase mean to you uh, when you hear the phrase Conversations with the Mind? How does that resonate? Uh, what sort of imagery comes up for you? Um, just how do you how do you make sense of that phrase? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think where my mind goes, um, because this is an idea that resonates quite heavily with me, and one that I've encountered quite um, almost endlessly, actually, within my work, is an intentional journey. If you seek your own happiness. Um, I think when you uh, kind of put yourself at the forefront um, and instead of living to others' expectations, you get a good um, understanding of what sort of your hopes and your dreams are. Um, but to do that, I think you really have to get in tune with yourself, uh, with oneself. And to do that, I think is, yeah, exploring um, your mind, your body, your soul, um, everything that, you know, connects you to make you, you know, the human being that you are today. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. I think, yeah, my mind first went to seeking happiness. Um, and the reason I think again, that resonates so heavily is within my work, um, I'm not sure if you look and when talk about, you know, how people are at at the end of life and, um, you know, I hate to say like if they have any sort of regrets, if they kind of come to light at that time. And and the biggest one is that they lived a life to make other people happy. And that's quite, you know, a heavy um, sentiment to be sitting with, especially at the end of life, knowing there's no rewind button and you can't redo it. Um, But that's something that they, they almost hope that, you know, sort of pay pass this along you know if you're going to educate others is that you have every right to happiness however it looks you know at least my golden rule is as long as you're kind to yourself and others you're doing it right um but yeah you know not to let others define that and how else will you know what it is to you unless again um you kind of have that conversation with yourself so nice that's uh 
how I would, yeah, respond to that wonderful question in a nutshell. Uh, what a great answer too. And, um, you know, I, I hear it all the time and you're probably more up to date on the, the actual stats as far as um, people at the end of life and when asked what they regret, um, you know, how many of them say they regret living their life, um, you know, to please others or, or not following their own dreams. But I feel like that is, uh, that's, you're absolutely right. Like that's, that's the point of this existence on this planet is to pursue your own dreams, to pursue your own happiness. Um, and so many people, including myself in the past and still sometimes currently like struggle with um, define number one, like defining, like what makes me happy and how do I pursue that? But also you like getting into that groove and, and, sort of shutting out the judgment or expectations of other people, because, you know, we live in such a, you know, social communal type society that it's, it's hard to snap yourself out of that mode where, where you really care about what other people think and just go after whatever makes you happy, regardless of what other people think. So uh, what would you say to, to me and to the audience listening out there, like, how does someone do that? How does someone um, sort of disregard the opinions or expectations of others and really dig into uh, their own happiness? Gosh, I mean, sadly, my mind would go to the fear of like your mortality. Like you really just don't know how long you have um, on this earth. And um, yeah, you know, it's a scary notion to know that we are in charge of our own happiness. We cannot let other people define it. Um, you know, we can't even let, you know, we, we do our best not to be influenced by the people that we love, even though they might have the best intentions for us, um, that this is our duty. And, and again, it's, um, it's, it's not selfish to put yourself at the forefront. And I think it's just easy to kind of do that these days, especially if you have a lot of responsibility. Um, you know, I can speak to this, I think, in a way more freely because I am a single woman. I'm not married. I don't have children. Um, I can pick up at a drop of a hat or at least, you know, at one time I could. Um, and, and at the end of the day, my responsibility is only to myself. So I do understand like, this is also a lot easier said than done, but if you know that you are doing something without the intention of harming somebody, you know, their feelings or their expectations of you, then right, you should be able, I'm hoping to give yourself permission to do again, just simply what makes you happy. Um, and, and again, going back to, to the work that I did at end of life, like it would be down to even something of like what car, kind of car they purchased. You know, they always, they saved up, they always wanted that dream car, but oh, you know, due to this or that, they ended up going for something a bit more practical. And that that's just something that, again, just resonates with them as like a, a woulda, coulda, shoulda. So it's, you know, why not at some times just go for it? Like, and this is like a, a really silly example, but I personally don't have any tattoos and I, you know, from afar, I certainly have admired yours. And I understand, like, this is a wonderful way that people have expressed themselves. And, you know, people are saying, oh, well, you know, it's permanent and this and that. And it's just like, well, who cares? You know, it's like their body. And if this is like a wonderful form of expression for them, they have one life and this is what they choose to do with it. Like, why would you care so much? 
about how, you know, what somebody chooses to do, you know, to, to their own uh, body, which they have absolute right to. So it's just like small things that, you you know, gradually, you know, build up and, and all of a sudden you turn around and you realize, right, this is a life that was paid for me by a bunch of other people that didn't have to live it. Um, you know, <clears throat> yeah, at the end of the day, uh, you know, these are your choices and hopefully you have people that are supportive and walking alongside you in this journey and not feeling like they're in front of you trying to pull you or behind you trying to push you again, you know, going at a pace that doesn't feel comfortable to you or again, making decisions that you didn't envision for yourself. So um, we, we should never live with regret, you know, that there's always something to learn from it, but you just don't want, again, um, people that aren't in your skin to define, you know, who you are essentially. Mm. Cause I think how you seek happiness is very much a part of, um, yeah. You know, what's a part of your soul. Yeah. A few things came up for me there. One about the tattoos, like, uh, I think I, I've heard that so many times, but it's, it's permanent. Aren't you re- going to regret it when you're older? And, uh, you know, I went in with a clear mind knowing full well that a tattoo is permanent. Like, that's why I got it. Like, I want it on me forever to remind me of the things that it, that it means. Um, so that's a plus thing for me. I don't want a tattoo that's going to work. But I'm out. like, out of curiosity, like, have you had people be like, oh, Shane, what about like when you want to get a job? Like, you know, you can't have the, like it's been shown or, you know, just, just sort of things that right at the time you probably, and you shouldn't even today, today like care. Um, but again, it's just that, what about other people? What about what do they think? And it's like, what? this is my body and this is what I aim to do. Yeah, um, absolutely. I've, I have had a lot of people. Uh, sorry to interrupt you there. No, it's all right. I've had a lot of people ask me about the job piece. Um, and um, I have a couple answers. First, like, you know, I'll go to some job interviews and uh, cover my tattoos because I don't want others to judge me based off of how I look. I want them to judge me based off of my work and hire me uh, that way. And then I'll, and then I'll show them the tattoos. And usually it's a big surprise. Other times uh, I won't wear long sleeves and my um, sort of my, my attitude going into the interview is that if you don't accept me for who I am, uh, right off the bat, then I don't want to work for you anyway. Then you're too close-minded exactly. and I don't want to be around you. Um, yeah. So, and then there's this other piece, right? Like, uh, and, you know, it's it's a part of part of me holding back a little bit, but um, I've always wanted a neck tattoo. So like right on my neck. And, uh, you know, even if you wear a suit or something like that shows, you know, so yeah. I've, I've made a deal with myself that I'm going to hold off on getting the neck, the full neck tattoo until after I get the PhD. Yeah. And then after <laughs> I get the PhD, then I can, then that's my graduation gift to myself is to get my full neck tattoo. Because after that, like, you know, the, the doors open up and people are more focused on your, on your work than they are on uh, who, you know, what you look like or anything like that. Um so another thing, yeah, another yeah. thing came up um, when you were talking about that. And so you're talking about uh, pursuing your happiness. And you said uh, something really important that I think was just, um, it was said really briefly. And I just want to focus in on it a little bit. And you said, as long as you're not hurting other people, you should be able to pursue your happiness, right? And um, earlier when, yeah. you, when you were talking about this, what came to my mind was like, 
Well, what about those people out there, um, you know, CEOs, uh, people who, uh, you know, politicians, people who step on others in order to pursue their happiness and get ahead in life? Um, what about those people? Like, aren't they, aren't they following their dreams and following their happiness as well? And shouldn't they be allowed to do that? But then you, you mentioned like not doing harm to others. Um, and I think there's, there's a line there too, uh, because I, I certainly don't like, I don't like anybody infringing on my own happiness or my own ability to pursue my happiness. Um, I don't like government entities telling me what I can and cannot put in my body. I don't like laws telling me, you know, how I can pursue my happiness. And yet we still have, you know, uh, restrictions on consciousness. We have restrictions on how we can explore ourselves. We have re- all sorts of these uh, restrictions on how people can pursue their happiness. And so that always, that always gets me a little bit. I'm, uh, just wondering what you think about, you know, others pursuing their happiness where maybe they are doing some harm to other people and maybe they don't care. Um, and then also. Again, it comes down, yeah. It just comes down again to how you define it because these individuals have, yeah, could be pursuing this type of happiness, but having no, um, you know, comprehension of right of how their actions are, you know, harming more vulnerable populations. At the same time, they could have absolutely right, um, every understanding of what they're doing and still do and still, you know, continue to do what they're doing. Um, I don't know, you know, again, at the I can only imagine the different types of thoughts that people have at the end of life, as much as I have seen, um, gosh, how many people, um, you know, pass. Um, I've never come across two conversations that have been the same. So again, it it just goes down to the uniqueness of that experience um, and what it conjures up for you. Um, But I've heard, you know, countless uh, um, experiences and experience of few of myself where people divulge a lot at the end of life because um, it's interesting they could have been you know um, non-religious their whole life or even an atheist and and all of a sudden something happens at the end of life where they feel like they have to repent or you know um, absolve themselves of something that they did in the past because they're fearful of where they're going to next. Um, and, and even like just with no warning, you know, all of a sudden family members are learning, you know, these deep dark secrets or these skeletons that they didn't know existed um, because this person, you know, at the end of life has to free themselves and, you know, so to speak, um, and doesn't want the fear of, again, carrying that to, to where um, they might anticipate where they're going. So, um, you know, that that's, again, really interesting. You know, I, I can say it as a social worker, like, oh, gosh, yeah, how dare these people. But at the same time, right, they have free will. Um, they walk this earth, too. Um, and, and right, they're, they're, you know, seeking a happiness um, that at least uh, at this time, you know, fits well for them. Who knows if that's going to be there forever, though? Yeah. And I'm so glad that I that I could have you on the podcast today because I, I don't think I've ever had a guest on the show who spends so much of their own waking conscious life um, focusing on, you know, and thinking about death and mortality and, and end of life issues, um, especially, I mean, you're so young and you, and you're, you're just like, you, uh, you surround yourself with, with these, uh, these end of life things. And, you know, as you talk about it and, you know, I'm sure the listeners are getting this too, but as I hear you talk about it, 
you know, most of my thoughts are, are thinking about people, um, you know, who are older in age, like older age folks mm-hmm. in their seventies and eighties, uh, who are dying of, um, you know, natural or unnatural causes, whatever, but older in life. And, uh, you know, the truth about mortality and end of life is that we don't know when it's going to end. It can end at any moment. And so, um, you know, I've, I've read some of these studies in what you're talking about, like uh, people repenting at the end of life and sharing um, some of their deepest, darkest secrets to get it off their chest. Well, shouldn't we be doing that anyway? Like even when we're not uh, older in age, because we don't know when the end is coming, you know, and if, if you're so worried about what's going to happen after you die, um, like that could happen in the next five minutes. So why not, why not just be truthful and honest and transparent all the time with as many people as you can and really, really focus on what's important in this life, like relationships and, and things like that, instead of waiting until your seventies or eighties to do that. Right. Exactly. Um, but you get really good at convincing yourself um, that, that you'll never have to cross that bridge, right? Um, in, until you get there. So, um, but at the same time, I think for every one person that might be sharing a, a deep, dark secret, there's one that also takes it with them. Mm. Um, so again, since we don't really know what happens um, when we die, who, who knows, you know, where that information goes, but um, yeah, you know, the ramifications are, are quite incredible because right. Once you disclose that, you know, to your family member, I've seen this happen where, you know, a mom told something to their daughter and then they pass and now it's left for this, you know, the daughter to, to now kind of carry this secret. It, it's um, uh, we, you know, we talk about a lot about how at the end of life, you know, the, the, our loved ones who are passing often leave us with these final gifts. Um, but that's one that that's, uh, I don't know if I would classify, you know, necessarily as a gift, it becomes a burden. So like you mentioned, you know, if you have this time to explain um, and give reassurance and comfort while you can, please do so because right, tomorrow is never um, guaranteed to us. But we are a culture that does like to learn the hard way. Um, so it's like not until we are faced with that, do, do we really, um, yeah, will we really be open and honest um, with the feelings um, that accompany death and, and end of life? Mm. So here's a, here's a totally non-scientific question for you. Um, what do you think, <laughs> yeah, what do you think happens um, after we die? Like, what is your, what is your personal uh, beliefs around that? Gosh, you know, I, I, it's a wonderful thought, like to think like, I don't necessarily believe, I definitely don't believe in heaven and hell. I'll, de- I'll say that. Um, but I'd like to think you get to go somewhere where you don't harbor the same kind of stress um, and ill feelings or whatnot that you, you had on this life. I think it's a, an incredibly freeing experience, almost like something just kind of bursts out of you where it's like, I'm not carrying this where I'm going next. Um, because that's just going to be a, a very lovely experience for me. Um, but uh, the, what I love is um, actually what Keanu Reeves um, once said. To, uh, he, he did an interview on Colbert, and Colbert asked him, like, what do you think happens when people die? And he provided such a marvelous response that the people that love you will miss you. And that was just so marvelous because, yeah, that is the one thing that is guaranteed is that you will be missed. 
that's, that's just the only thing that we know really happens when people pass. Um, but one way that um, I kind of talk about this, especially with people who are grieving, because it kind of helps them sort of wrap their head around it, is because we don't know, because science hasn't proven everything, which is wonderful, it gets to be whatever you want it to be. So, you know, conjure up that creativity, think of that person, what would have been heaven or, you know, a a wonderful place to go after life for this individual and you have every right. So it's, again, it's just a very freeing experience. I think it's one of those mysteries that I should remain a mystery. Um, If I can go on a bit of a tangent, um, one of my very first um, clients that I had when I did bereavement work was a a very young guy. He was 17 years old and he just lost his mom to cancer. Um, It it was a very quick loss, but she had enough time, uh, luckily, to to pass in hospice. And so um, he, you know, um, was, of course, devastated when she passed. And so we had a few sessions and one day he came in and he was just a lot lighter in his step and his words and just how he looked. And so I inquired, you know, kind of what happened. And he told me he had a dream about her, um, that she came to visit him, that she reassured him that she was somewhere magical, but he wasn't allowed to know where she was until it was his turn. Mm. And he just completely accepted it's sort of like you, you have earned this membership to a club, you know, that you didn't necessarily want to join, but there you are. Um, and you can't know, again, the destination or location until it's your time. So um, I like kind of thinking that way, that it's not something I need to know. Mm. When it's my time, you know, maybe I'll figure it out at that point. Um, but in Till then, let it, you know, sort of drive you um, because you think there is, you know, uh, a heaven and a hell, like um, be good because you want to be a good person, not because you think you're going to be rewarded in the afterlife. Like, again, that has not been proven. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. No, I, I love that. And, um, you know, I don't necessarily believe in a heaven or hell as like a destination, <laughs> a place that you go. <laughs> um even though, you know, a lot of my belief system is based around Buddhism and Buddhism, Buddhists do talk about, um, you know, different realms or different dimensions of reality, some being God realms, some being hell realms, some being realms of addiction, some being realms of animal, um, animal incarnations, things like that. So in some way, I do believe that um, it is possible to be you know, and I believe in rebirth and, and things like that and reincarnation. Uh, so I do believe that you can be reborn into different types of places or different animals or plants or whatever. But um, yeah. as far as uh, heaven and hell goes, like, you know, it's not proven that these are destinations. But, you know, I think we all know um, and we can prove anecdotally that you can create your own heaven or your own hell here on earth right and so so that i do believe and i do believe that uh you can be living in a literal hell or a literal heaven in any moment and and a lot of that is based off of personal choice a lot of it is based off of circumstance but even people in the most desolate circumstances can still find happiness and still um shift their perspective in a way that turns their existence into happiness, into a heaven. Um, so I, I do believe that the mind has that power over our reality that we can, we can turn it into whatever we want it to be. And I do love, 
you know, the mystery of death. That's, uh, that's yeah. really cool. And I'm curious, um, Absolutely. You, you've worked for so long in end of life uh, care with people, you know, who have been near death. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm wondering, have you ever been in a room with someone as they actually died? And then also, um, I'm wondering, how do you, as a, as a social worker, as a counselor, how do you work with someone who knows that death is near? And how do you, how do you, like, how do you talk to them about uh, death? You know, some people are afraid of it. Some people are not afraid of it. Um, yeah. So have you seen someone actually pass in front of you? And uh, how do you, how do you work with people? Who are yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, unfortunately, I've had experiences, um, both professionally and personally, um, where, yeah, I, I have seen somebody take their last, last breaths. Mm. Um, it is, uh, again, for, for someone like me, the, the uh, most rewarding experience. Uh, and I know that that's not necessarily, you know, for the average person, um, but you are allowing me into this last part of your life, or, you know, maybe I, I had known you a lot longer than that, but um, you, I, again, you're, you're giving me a gift that is um, immeasurable and, and certainly has no monetary value to that. It's just, it's priceless. Um, so, but one thing that that's really important to, to realize when you're doing end of life work is that it's not not about you. It's about that person. Again, you know, that is at, uh, at the end, taking their last breaths and ensuring that they're at the, the most comfort that you can provide. Um, and of course, you know, you're there for their loved ones as well. Um, so the surprising thing about my work, yeah, and, and I would say that this was a, a great fear when I first started was right, what happens if I go in there and they're in shambles and they're in tears and oh my gosh, I don't know the, the answer to you know, their questions or if I get emotional. Um, but what has happened, I would say a great majority of the time is that people who are at the end of life have a great understanding as to why they're there. And more than often, they have fought a great battle, you know, towards the, this illness. And they're in, um, you know, hopefully this isn't a lack of a, a good word, but they're okay with it. Because they, they again, live that life. And, you know, for so long, they, they had a loss of autonomy, you know, their health, um, a sense of self, you know, how they even viewed themselves, they maybe even lost, you know, friendships along the way. It's just like having that understanding, like I put in that, that good time. I did fight a battle, but at the same time, you know, my body is worn out. My mind is, I'm not who I am. I don't see quality in my life. This is a relief. Mm. So the conversations I end up having with patients at the end of life are ones that they often cannot have sadly with loved ones because they don't want to give the impression that they're giving up, which they're not, but they're just okay with it you know that they, they reconcile this as the best as they can and um they're, they're comfortable with what's about to happen but right it's the survivors it's the loved ones that that are struggling that that can't picture that life without them that are still you know even at the very end are hoping for some sort of you know quote-unquote miracle to happen um but so, so that's where it's not scary you know it, it's um it's understanding my role it, it's like I am uh, you know, the holder of that, that story, they want to share this narrative, they haven't had the opportunity. So it's my duty to, to give them permission to do so. Um, so again, even at the end of life, you are operating in a way that makes sense to you and, and not other people. And 
you know, if you can even find happiness in sharing, you know, what are your thoughts at the end of life? Um, absolutely. Uh, you know, that, that is a wonderful avenue that I would like to provide to you. So it's, uh, yeah, it's like the most open and honest conversations. They're very, um, loving, uh, they're insightful, uh, whimsical. Um, but I don't, I can't really say when I've encountered fear mm. for the most part, people are, are okay with it. Like I said, but they just worry about the ones that they're leaving behind. Um, and a very, uh, interesting tidbit, which is kind of left field is that I have also found that a lot of people at the end of life are living for their pets. The human beings, you know, they can make some sense, like they're going to find a way it's okay. But for animals, that human, uh, animal bond, like that is incredible. That unconditional love is again, it just resonating so highly with you that you just who is going to, you know, look after my dog, my cat. And so um, that's the other interesting part that I've learned about in uh, conversations at the end of life is how much animals mean to, to individuals. Wow. Well, that really flips the script on uh, how I've understood, um, you know, people at the end of life. Um, you know, I guess, you know, what I've always thought is, you know, a lot of people at the end of life are, you know, afraid to pass, but um you know, to hear you say that it's the family members, the people that surround them that are the most afraid of what life is going to be like after them, that the people who are actually dying are, are uh, okay with it. Like, wow, like that, that really resonates. And, and that actually, that feels really good to hear. Um, because, you know, the person who's dying there, they should be the one okay with it, right? They, they don't have much time to work on that issue, if they were afraid of it. Whereas, you know, the people they're leaving behind, like they still they still get to work on their grief, they still get to work on that, because they're still here. And, you know, um, that makes a lot of sense. And, and again, you know, I have an advantage in the sense that the majority of my end of life work has taken place in a hospice. So these are individuals that start to grieve themselves as soon as they get the diagnosis, right? Like it, it doesn't really actually come at the end. This is, you know, been their journey for quite some time. Wow. It can be from weird, mere weeks to years. Um, but because again, they're living in this in the everyday, they're understanding the, the actual weight of this journey. Whereas again, those on the outside are being very hopeful. And we are also really good at seeing what we want to see. And the other times, you know, we might be burying our head in the sand. So um, you know, that's why I really encourage, you know, family when they can just do again, you know, and, and we're taught this in social work to really meet them where they're at, like, don't force it, you know, don't, you know, guide the conversation, even just let them be and share what they need to, you know, again, you're there as a support as a loving person, it's not to negotiate at this time, you know, what, what they're feeling. Um, and even, you know, they're sort of uh, what their goals of care might be. Um, but um yeah, it's, it's again, um, pe people who are dying have had time to, to understand that this is a possible outcome. Whereas family members, yeah, I think will always be a different story. Because I, I think it's just mentality around it. I think if you let your mind go there, sometimes people feel like they're jinxing the situation. Like, oh, no, I put too many ill thoughts or negative, you know, feelings out there. And this is what caused it. And it's like, no, like you have every right to be practical and realistic about this because um, it will sadly, you know, age you when, gosh forbid, you do have to cross that bridge. Because if you were in denial that whole time, oh my goodness, your, your grieving process gets even more complicated. So um, like you said, transparency goes such a long way. Um, 
Yeah. So before we uh, before we launch into your research interests in this in this field, um, I sort of have a uh, tangential question for you, because when you were just talking about um, you know the process that these folks go through, where they're they're given a diagnosis and then they start a journey where they begin their grieving process early, and then by the time they reach the end of life, like they they've been in training for this moment and they're ready, you know. Um, I, yeah. So my tangential uh, sort of comment or question, and it's it's uh, a little bit of an overlap between my research interest and your research interest, is that in in the field of uh, psychedelics and and the research, um, there's a, a commonly held quote that uh, meditation and psychedelics are training grounds for death. They're they're training tools uh, to get closer to and understand and be comfortable with death. Um, and that that comes a lot from you know these these experiences that people have both in meditation and through psychedelics, where you experience you know an ego death, where your identity completely dissolves, uh, who you see yourself as, uh, your literal sense of self dissolves away, and you become you know one with the universe uh, for a little while, and people really feel like in when they're in the experience, they really feel like, oh my gosh, I'm literally dying right now. I'm not going to come back. And they have all those thoughts like, are my loved ones going to be okay? You know, I've had these thoughts many times um, reaching mystical states in, in meditation and psychedelics. And so when, when you hear that phrase, you know, that meditation and psychedelics are a training ground for death, uh, just w- what comes to mind for you? I hope it provides a sense of gratitude. Mm. You know, like when, when you kind of, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but like kind of come back to to real life or, or, Mm. you know, your baseline that you can reflect on that and be like, oh, okay. So, you know, that that's, um, you know, a potential insight to what, you know, those, that kind of those final days might entail. Um, Again, it might boost your spirit in a sense of like, I got to live every day, you know, for what it's worth, or again, um, define my own happiness and make sure those are the paths that I'm taking. Um, yeah, I, 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 my mind just goes to like, oh, that's probably a very interesting educational opportunity about how to kind of, um, go about life. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I've always enjoyed how uh, kind of our fields have sort of collided in that sense. Um, because I think, yeah, that there's a lot of interesting work being done around um, psychedelics and end of life care. Um, and and I, we can go into that a bit later or, what, or whatnot. But um, yeah, no, that's interesting. This ego, this concept of ego death, because when you said that, like, you, you know, your loss of sense of self, that's what people, again, um, who especially, you know, are uh, living with, you know, long term illnesses um, or life threatening ones must experience because all of a sudden you don't recognize yourself. It could be in a physical sense, but it's often, you know, quite emotional and psychological. If you were very astute and, you know, bright and on top of things and all of a sudden you're forgetful, you know, that's something that you're grieving about yourself. Um, Again, you know, physical things you could once do that you now have to to let go of. That's another loss that you're grieving. Um, It's a continuous cycle. So again, you know, just kind of going back, I think that's what is um, at the forefront of people who are at the end of life is is a lot of the losses and they can't recognize themselves anymore. So um, with that, again, I think comes your quality of to your life. And if it's, 
null or not to, to what your standard should be. Um, you have every right to, to again, let go. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I absolutely think that, you know, the way that you, you thought that it could be used, uh, you come back with, with extreme gratitude for life. That's usually what, what gets reported is that, uh, you know, people have this ego death experience and they come back and they're like, oh my gosh, like I really have to live my life to the fullest. Um, and what an amazing revelation to have, right? And an amazing motivator to turn your life around if, if you've been headed down a, a pathway that is not serving you. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I said meditation and psychedelics are training for death. And in the way that we just described, they're also a training for life too. You know, I have a, a really particular um, Buddhist meditation that I do. And I have these prayer beads from Nepal that are made out of uh, yak bones. And in Buddhism, um, cool. uh, yeah, in, in Buddhism, the, the uh, mala beads that are made out of bone are specifically and only to be used when meditating on the concept of death. And so I'll sit down with these beads and intentionally meditate where my focus is entirely thinking about all topics related to death. And, um, you know, when I tell everyday Americans about this meditation, they're like, oh my gosh, how morbid can you get? You just sit down for hours and just think about <laughs> death. And it's, it's the exact opposite. And, um, you know, in, in this meditation, you know, the more you think about death, the more you contemplate death, what happens is that you, you almost befriend it in a way. You, you become more familiar with death. You become uh, familiar with some of the ideas of, What's going to happen to you? What's going to happen to your loved ones? What's going to happen, you know, in the afterlife and things like that. And so you befriend death in a way and, you know, the fear of death completely leaves. And then when you snap out of your meditation, um, almost always you have this brand new reinvigorated appreciation for life and for beauty and for the people and plants around you. And um, it's, it's the exact opposite of a morbid meditation um, to be able to do this. So I encourage the, the listeners to give it a try, you know, um, sit down for five or 10 minutes and close your eyes and think about nothing except for death related thoughts and see what comes up for you. You know, there might be some anxieties that come up around certain thoughts, but the more you sit with it, you're going to find that there's, there's nothing really to be afraid of. The death is the most natural thing that you could ever do in your life. It's the one thing um, in your life that you cannot fail at, right? No one's going to fail at dying. You know, it's, it's going to happen to us all. Um, but I want to dig now into, uh, into your research. So uh, you've been in the end of life um, field for, you know, 10 plus years. And now you're, you're, you're digging into end of life issues for people who are often very overlooked, especially in our culture, which are um, those uh, inmate populations. So folks who are incarcerated um, in a number of different types of uh, jails and prisons across the country, you know, the United States is, is the number one um, jail and prison population as far as numbers in the whole country or in the whole world per capita. We have a huge uh, private prison industrial complex here in the United States where we're basically um, locking away marginalized populations and using them for slave labor to, you know, manufacture all sorts of goods for cheap. You know, I'm gonna, I could go off for uh, on a tangent forever about how bad our country is at that. But you really um, have impressed upon me the importance of 
not overlooking uh, these people, that these people, even though they, they may have made mistakes and they are in these lockdown facilities, that they still have a right to a peaceful death um, that we all do, that we all have um, certain, you know, human rights around that. Um, and so I'm wondering, if you, yeah, if you could just uh, share with the audience real quick, like I, I spent the last two years hearing about your project and I love it. Uh, if you could just spend a little bit of time um, telling the audience what you're looking into as far as, um, you know, inmates and end of life. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in a way, I kind of came into this program and, and this country with a bit of a blank slate. Of course, yeah, sadly, I do know that the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate uh, in the world. Um, but an also interesting trend is that globally, though, incarceration rates have decreased while this country alone, that, that has, you know, escalated to uh, an incredibly harmful degree. Um, so, you know, uh, it just kind of started off first with a basic literature review of what is available, you know, in, in terms of what are the end of life interventions that currently exist in correctional facilities. Um, so sadly, kind of off the bat, there isn't a whole lot of literature, at least I think, you know, that deserves to be dedicated to this um, realm. So already it's a bit of an under-researched area. Um, but I found that, right, you know, there, there are a lot of systematic barriers um, a lot of politics involved, um, you know, and uh, so, you know, every state is, is kind of doing their own thing, um, has different varying types of care mandates. Um, and so with that kind of comes, you know, different sort of expectations and everybody in, in the end, I think, you know, fingers crossed are kind of doing the best with the resources that they have. Um, so again, lots of, um, uh, of, you know, inhumane treatment, you know, pain management continues to be an obstacle because how do you provide, you know, narcotics to the, um, of, you know, this population. Um, but one wonderful part that I have found through my research, which is what I'll be dedicating my dissertation to, is um, the prevalence of peer inmate uh, end of life caregiving programs. So this is where a healthy inmate is trained to volunteer to support a dying inmate um, or individuals at the end of life. So this is providing everything from practical care to emotional care, maybe even spiritual, um, but it's just, you know, a wonderful sense of camaraderie and, you know, there's almost like a substitute family because, you know, again, differing, um, facilities have kind of different visitation rights when it comes to when an inmate's at the end of life. So should a family not be there? So going back to, to, to your beautiful introduction to this is right. These are still people who are members of society and are providing such an integral service. Like I can do this because I got the education to do this, right? And, you know, I got these opportunities for the, this experience, but I even have friends in social work that are like, oh my gosh, Shivani, I could never do this type of work. So then we look at like this incredibly vulnerable population where they are able to do this work. And so what I'm hoping to do is shed light like on this extraordinary service, because um, again, I, I'm not, I'm don't know for sure what sort of vocational opportunities are available. Again, I think they're different in every prison. I don't know what sort of incentives are involved. These are sort of the things that I hope to, to examine. Um, but, you know, in a sense, you don't have to do this at all. But some reason, as a volunteer, you are providing this type of care for uh, your friend um, or a peer at the end of life. So my 
my um, dissertation is looking into what are the motivators, right? Like A, like what makes you do this? And B, what do you get out of it? What is your meaning making experience from this? So I hope to capture, you know, these wonderful narratives of these volunteers um, who provide this service. Um, and you and right, you know, um, especially knowing, yeah, so I'm very curious to kind of especially know what their training is, because again, I'm, uh, I'm a well aware of what a community hospice volunteer would get. Um, but, it, you know, uh, is it this sort of um, the same sort of information being delivered to, to um, inmate populations? Uh, so I, I want to know, again, like, um, Without a doubt, I believe this is definitely contributing to, I'm very interested again, like how are they provided with education? How is it being delivered? You know, what are those sort of outcomes? And also what are the gaps in care? You know, what are, what are some of the areas, as I'm sure there are a lot of um, places for improvement, but I've uh, had the opportunity to, to kind of present this work, you know, over almost 20 conferences in the past two years. And the number one feedback I get is, I didn't even think of that. And, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, right, why would you, you know, unless you know a person that's incarcerated, your mind's not going to go necessarily A, to incarcerated populations and B, like worrying about how they're, they're passing away. Um, but this is a very big problem, whether you know somebody who is in prison or not, because this affects taxpayers as well. As you know, U.S. citizens know, um, overcrowding is a huge um, problem in U.S. prisons um, a lot or nine out of 10 I've read of inmates, they pass away from older age or a life-threatening illness. It's not due to homicide or suicide. Um, so it, it's just people, again, aging in place and, and what are correctional facilities doing to make sure that they're getting, you know, the best of care. Um, because I come from a place as do mo hopefully most people that work in medicine that look at healthcare as a right and not a privilege. And it shouldn't be, you know, ripped with all the other civil liberties, um, that these individuals have taken away from them. Like, um, they are still living, you know, and breathing, if they can especially still, you know, verbalize what kind of care they would like at the end of life, I believe that should be acknowledged. Um, but otherwise, I think they should have all of the resources that they need um, to make sure that they get proper end of life care. Um, because the other part of this is that uh, there's such a thing called compassionate release policy. So these laws um, at least on paper say that, hey, if you know, if you're an inmate, you're at the end of life. Um, and if you meet all of these sort of prerequisites, there's an opportunity for you to die in the community. Well, even though some form of this exists in every U.S. state, they are very complicated. Um, some are incredibly difficult to even fill out the application. Even lawmakers are, or sorry, lawyers are like uh, completely um, get confused. Uh, at the language that are being used within these applications. So they end up being incredibly underutilized. So, you know, if, okay, fine, if you're gonna create a barrier for inmates to access this, then again, that, that's why it has to be um, much more of a significant issue to make sure that you're providing quality end of life care within, um, you know, correctional facilities. So, um, you know, I've had the 
opportunity to attend a lot of um, conferences around healthcare in corrections. And so, um, you know, there's a wonderful noise, I think, that's being made, but not to, I think, the degree that I I think uh, it certainly deserves. So I'm very excited to, again, network more and make connections and further on with this type of research because, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, poor choices don't make for poor people. And everybody gets to die with dignity, at least where I come from. And if they want somebody there to hold their hand, they should be allotted that. Um, and I don't think it, it, it's asking for too much. Compassion, I, I think, should be for free. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we'll get into this a little bit later. Um, you know, this piece about uh, healthcare being a a human right. It's almost like here in the United States, we don't we don't view healthcare that way. You know, we view it as uh, if you can afford it, then you can get the help. Um, if you can't afford it, well, sorry, you know, you need to make some better choices, which is really unfortunate. Um, you know, I don't see that in a, in any other country that I've visited in my life. Um, you know, we 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 have uh, we have this tendency to just turn our backs a lot more on, on people in need. Um, so you're talking about inmates uh, at end of life. And I'm wondering, because um, I, don't, I don't know if I've sussed this out yet um, in the last couple of years that I've known you and talked with you about your project, but are these um, inmates who are, you said nine out of 10 of them uh, age out, you know, are, are they um, primarily um, inmates who are in like a hospice situation where they've gotten a diagnosis of being terminal or they know that their death is coming um, and so they they need this uh, peer support or are these peer support programs also in place for like people on death row who also have like an actual date that they're going to die um, and they may want some uh, support around you know the process leading up to uh, their their death date. That is a great question. I honestly don't know for sure. Um, I, I do know that they are becoming more prevalent. I, I um, At least 80, you know, uh, of these programs exist. Um, it could even be, you know, close to 100 um, across the U.S., which does sound like a large number. But again, there, there I think there are quite a few prisons that also exist across mm-hmm. the U.S. So I think this comes down to... Um, as most things like money, you know, it, it takes resources, it takes people to train, um, you know, extra staffing, um, you know, uh, correctional officers to provide security. So it's not necessarily something, you know, that can kind of, I think, um, be created overnight. It, it does take, you know, a lot of advocacy, but um, yeah, you know, I, I'm especially, yeah, around death row, um, that that's really interesting because that's also, you know, an anticipation um, of sort of end of life. I, but, ooh, you know, the stigma sort of attached to that are, are the, would they, that's a good question. Are they allotted the same type of, uh, you know, social or spiritual or emotional support as somebody, you know, that's right, dying in a hospice. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I don't even know how many hospices actually exist uh, across U.S. prisons or if, you know, inmates are dying in an infirmary or even, gosh forbid, you know, within their own cell. Um, it's because, again, there is to kind of see um, who is doing what and what has been most effective, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just on my other... Um 
Google screen here. I was looking up uh, how many prisons there are in the U.S. It says um, the American criminal justice system holds almost 2.3 million people in 1,833 yeah. state prisons, 110 federal prisons, 1,772 juvenile facilities, over 3,000 local jails, 218 immigration detention facilities, 80 Indian country jails, uh, as well as military prisons, civil commitment centers, and state psychiatric institutes. So um, yeah, we're not just talking about uh, prisons here. You know, we're talking about people dying in any and all of these uh, types of facilities who might be mm -hmm. uh, needing this sort of care and who could benefit from uh, your research. That's a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And how do we find them all? Um, and certainly, yeah, assess uh, what their needs are. And especially are they being, you know, delivered? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, you know, another, oh, gosh, alarming figure is uh, taxpayers. Yeah. And state and federal governments are paying over $2 billion annually, you know, for health care. Um, and who knows if potentially, you know, the, those costs can be cut if there are more opportunities, either A, to enhance care within facilities or B, provide more opportunities, right, you know, to, to die or age out in the community. Um, but that is a, a big number. So that's, um, you know, a whole other reason why I hope people don't view this um, imperative issue as, you know, somebody else's problem. Like, no, th this is, believe me, um, definitely one that you should consider to be in your own backyard. And that's that's two plus billion dollars just for the health care of these individuals, you know, um, I think and I don't I don't know where. Um, yeah, it's where on the, healthcare. yeah, I don't know where this statistic came from uh, or when I last saw it, but I was amazed when I saw it. It was something like um, each year it costs an average of around, you know, 60,000 plus dollars to house and feed uh, and provide health care to each inmate in our system. $60,000, that's, that's a lot more money than a lot of people with college degrees make every year. Um, I used to work with mm -hmm. uh, homeless individuals here in Fort Collins, um, as well as, you know, I was a counselor in the local jail. And I would commonly hear from people who were living on the street that um, they, would, they would prefer to get arrested so that they have a warm meal and a, and a warm bed and a roof over their head because the taxpayer will pay for it. You know, when, you know, why, why, why can't we spend as taxpayers um, less money? Probably we could probably spend 40,000 per individual and provide a slew of services to help them get jobs and help them get shelter and help them get back on their feet, as opposed to just locking them up and putting them in cages. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh gosh. It is, it gets to be infuriating, you know, as you, you go through, um, you know, each statistic and when you think, right, what, uh, that money could have gone to instead, um, I wish I was more hopeful, you know, that uh, things were, were getting better. Um, unfortunately, I think uh, it might be going the opposite way. But I mean, it invigorates me even more to, to pursue this type of advocacy um, and, and give voice to those um, that have a voice but aren't being heard. Mm -hmm. So it, it takes, um, I think, a, a, I'm hoping that a lot more um, individuals that work in uh, corrections 
uh, and particularly in, within healthcare, um, share their experiences and, and their, um, you know, their observations and their own narratives because they they, they see it, you know, in their everyday. Um, Sadly, people are not or, you know, aren't in a position where they can, you know, ask inmates, you know, how are, are things going? Um, so we have to rely on, on these professionals. Um, but, you know, you, you've seen on the news and online, like, um, you know, inmates that they have, they capture their own sort of cell phone uh, footage. Um, I saw a few, you know, especially during COVID and, and showing, you know, what terrible type of environments that they're in. And they're really, you know, literally left to die no masks, you know, no sort of safety precautions, certainly no six feet social distancing. Um, and, you know, an uproar of how, you know, this footage got released and it's just like, how could you fault them? You know, they're, they're in such a uh, vulnerable position, nobody's advocating for them. So they have to do it themselves. And, and why yes, you know, through illegal means, how else were we supposed to understand what this actually looked like? So, um, yeah, again, all I can do is my best and, and that will always be rooting for an underdog, but they, they shouldn't be underdogs. They're, they're still human beings. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right that there is a social stigma attached to anybody who is incarcerated for any reason. Um, and that still exists. And, you know, I know that there's probably people out there even listening to this episode who are thinking in the back of their head, they, they just want to tell you like, these people don't deserve anything. Like they made their choices. They should be punished. You mm -hmm. know, and It's almost like that, uh, that punishment yeah. stigma, that punishment mentality that you, you know, you did the crime, you need to do the time uh, and you need to be punished and have your rights stripped away from you. Cause that's what happens in jail is you, you know, here, if you live in this country, you have a ton of different rights, you know, right to free speech, right to uh, own a weapon, you know, all these rights. But when you go to jail, you lose a lot of those rights. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, in some cases, you even lose uh, rights to your own consciousness, to, to your own sovereignty over your own, your own health, your yeah. body, your exactly. mind. But, um, you know, this, this stigma, this uh, sort of mindset of punishment is still very pervasive in, in the United States culture mm -hmm. anyway. And um, I think we could learn a lot from uh, different countries who, who take more of a rehabilitative mindset towards individuals who are struggling like this, exactly. right? Like uh, rehabilitative models um, that are focused more on community and focused more on like, how do we get these people back reintegrated into communities uh, so that they can be of service, so they have meaning and purpose, and so that they're valued by others. Um, and, you know, that versus the punishment model, which is all about, let's lock them away, let's put them in solitary confinement, um, you know, and you, you see the statistics between those two models, right? Rehabilitative programs oftentimes cost uh, less than punitive models. Mm -hmm. uh, the effects on long-term mental health care and physical health um, of individuals who are in the punitive systems versus the rehabilitative systems. Uh, it, there's a stark difference between those two, you know, the rehabilitative uh, systems promote, you know, greater, better long-term mental health and physical health versus the punitive ones. It's, it's just amazing to me to think that, you know, we as a, as a culture in the United States and you know you're you're from Canada, so I'm I'm speaking as a as a United States citizen that 
you know, I'm, I'm almost ashamed. <laughs> I'm ashamed to be a United States citizen. Sometimes I'm ashamed to be even associated with um, probably the majority of people who think that uh, these people are no longer people, that these people need to be punished, you know, and uh, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm, again, you know, have a Buddhist background and I, I believe in compassion and love for everyone. Doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just so disheartening. It is amazing how we will um, condone and confine somebody for the worst decision of their life, right? If they commit a crime, um, that's it. You know, no room for forgiveness, for rehabilitation, um, an opportunity for atonement. Everything is just said and done from, from that moment. Um, it, it's, yeah, like you said, it's just absolutely devastating. We, we have just, you know, in that exact moment, you've already, you know, sentenced somebody to life. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I don't get any sort of, um, it doesn't make me feel good to know that, you know, you're, you feel ashamed or anything like that, but, you know, it, it's just, it's maybe taking those feelings and again, you know, spinning it into to some sort of gold and using that to, to continue to advocate um, and, and at least just educate, you know, people that might have, you know, sort of those ill judgments of, right, you um, don't deserve healthcare. You don't deserve, you know, dignity at the end of life. This is all a part of your punishment and in your sentence. And no, you know, it's, it's not, it, it's, um, you are still uh, entitled to compassion that um, should be allotted to you, especially at the end of life. Like, again, should you be interested? I don't think that's for anybody else to um, define, but again, right, you know, um, this is a, 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 the US is very interesting when it comes to their laws and, and um, you know, you still have the death penalty and, and um, you know, things that, that don't exist in Canada. So it, it's a different type of uh, perspective for sure. Um, but yeah, I really hope, you know, public apathy changes and, and certainly social stigma um, that don't think further than this is a human being, you know, don't define them for what they did or didn't do. Um, just have some empathy. If you were in those shoes, what would you need, you know? Um, and it's just a little that goes a long way and, and they're at the end of life, you know, what, what harm could this really do if you just held somebody's hand, um, you know, who had a criminal record or not and gave them some comfort of where they were going next. It's, uh, I, I don't really know why that would impact somebody that lived on the outside, you know, that wasn't incarcerated. It's give that to them. But again, if you, if you don't understand or if you don't if you're not educated you're it's going to be yeah a pretty rocky road to get them to understand yeah it is tough and you know, i'm going to get a little uh a little vulnerable myself here and uh, go out on a limb and uh let you and the the listeners who don't know this about me um there was a time in my life too where i was incarcerated um i was you know in my late teens early 20s and was getting in a lot of legal trouble with alcohol and underage drinking and drinking and driving and, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, I never went to prison, but I was in um, you know, a, a county jail for 
weeks, a uh, number of weeks. And I know that that's, um, that's small, small amount of time compared to a lot of other people. Um, but I'm just saying like, you know, a lot of people went, when I went through that, a lot of people in my life wrote me off as, you know, he's a lost cause. He'll never get it. Yeah. Just leave him in there, you know? And then, you know, I got out and look at me like, you know, 10, 20 years later, I'm, you know, in a PhD program, I'm, I'm fulfilling my dreams. I'm the happiest I've ever been. You know, I'm helping, I've helped hundreds of people, um, you know, learn how to heal themselves, uh, you know, and it, it just, it just goes to show that even people who make bad decisions are not bad people, you know, um, Exactly. People are, yeah, people are not defined by one or two or 10 decisions that they make, you know, they can still have the potential to change worlds, you know, so I'm living through Absolutely. that. And I hope people don't hold that against me still. Uh, I see it today as a strength. Uh, it, it certainly allowed me to be a, a much better counselor inside the jail system because I had inmates talking to me and, and they knew that I had been in their seat before. Uh, literally in the same exact jail that they were in. And uh, they're like, oh my gosh, you really know what I'm going through. I'm like, yeah, I do. And it sucks. And here, let me help you, you know? Oh gosh. I recently um, attended this really fantastic conference around healthcare um, in corrections. And um, one of the reasons I absolutely loved it was about 80% of the speakers they had were formerly incarcerated individuals who now held like really highly regarded positions awesome. in academia. Like they um, are researchers, they're professors and at, like what you just spoke to and what you, um, you know, uh, certainly represent today is right. You know, that resiliency, you end up becoming the most, the best people to educate around, you know, um, uh, around issues that, uh, you know, uh, imprisoned population space or sorry, incarcerated rated population space like who best can put a name and face to that than people who lived it and and you know um did fantastic things you know on the other you know once they um were able to to be civilians again um th these are really integral um stories that need to be uh told and need to be shared so we don't have this horrible um, perspective that right these are not members of society and be written off and and let them just you know um wither away uh again some of the most fantastic people um in life i think right have maybe whether you spent time in, in prison or not is not it it's like have you ever made a mistake right if you're a living breathing person you 100 did that but these experiences, um, they can either, right, eat away at you or you can uh, learn from them and do really, really marvelous things with that, uh, with those sort of opportunities. So I, again, think that uh, people that have spent time or spending time in, um, you know, in, in prison or in jail have a lot to offer, but they needed to be provided with that opportunity, which sadly they're not allotted. Um, or even, you know, given permission to, or they start to self-define themselves as how the people around them are defining them as, you know, lost cause or, um, you know, other harmful uh, descriptors like that. So, um, you know, wonderful to you and all of those individuals that are heard, heard as well, that where you 
you didn't believe what other people were saying, right? You found that confidence within yourself, especially again, that resiliency um, and you proved them wrong. But at the end of the day, you, you did what made you happy. And that is just like the best life living, right? It's just, I was able to find my way, whether you believed in me or not. Yeah. Well, even, you know, it's, it is resiliency and I'm, I'm pretty damn resilient, but I think a lot of it was, you know, I used those words. So I'm so grateful and thankful and that I had those people in my life doubting me and, and telling me I was going to be worthless and telling me I was going to be nothing because it's their words that motivated me and still motivate me to this day to achieve the things that I achieve. Like I, I, you know, going back to the very first thing we were talking about, like not living up to other people's expectations, other people expected me to fail. And I use that as motivation to, to, you know, in my mind, like turn around and give them the middle finger and say, no, look, you, you believe I'm going to be a quitter. You believe I'm going to fail at this. Watch me, watch me. I'm going to prove all of you people wrong, you know, and um, not live by your expectation because I see my own value. You know, I know what I'm worth. And even if you don't see it, like that's, that's, that's your loss, you know, cause I, I have great things to do here on this planet. Um, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, the, the jail system and end of life and things like that. And, and especially talking about rights within those systems and also rights within the United States. And I think that's a perfect segue for us to transition um, to a little more of a lighthearted topic, but it's still <laughs> something I'm, I'm extremely interested in. Uh, so you're, you're an international student. You were, uh, you know, you joined our program from Canada and, um, you know, I'd love to talk to you about the differences between our two countries, because that, that always fascinates me. Like whenever I travel to other countries, I always uh, spend some time looking up their laws, you know, just, I mean, you should anyway, because uh, a lot of travelers get in a lot of trouble by um, traveling to other countries and, and assuming that their laws are the same, um, they can get in a lot of trouble. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about Canada versus the U.S. as far as, you know, rights, uh, you know, gun rights, drug rights, uh, rights to freedom of speech, you know, things like that, as well as um, talk about um, rights around healthcare, right? You guys have more of a universal healthcare system where everyone's guaranteed healthcare. Yeah. Over here, we, de we definitely do not have that. We are a for-profit healthcare system to the max. Um, so I'd love to talk to you and especially because uh, I've never been to Canada. Actually, I don't even know if um, Canada would let me in because of my uh, DUI history when I was 18 or 19. Um, I, I should try to get over there, but you coming over here, I would love to hear um, what you have, what you have to think about the United States and the way we do our rights here. You know, I had a, a bit of an insight, you know, uh, before, because like over 10 years ago, I got my master's degree and I did that in New York. So um, this is my, my second opportunity now that I have um, living in the U.S. Um, and yeah, you know, it is, we hear as Canadians, of course, you know, um, and even traumatizing, sadly, you know, U.S. healthcare systems can be. That's not to say that the Canadian healthcare system isn't reflective of that, too. Like, we, we can absolutely be um, uh, not up to snuff as well. Um, 
and 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 it, it can absolutely also get very expensive to, um, you know, uh, to, um, sorry, to achieve, you know, certain kind of healthcare or, you know, if you have specific healthcare needs, um, you know, things can still come out of pocket and certainly at a cost, but yeah, you know, comparatively, um, I think it's, oh gosh, you know, I, even today, even with all my education, I still can't for sure tell you, you know, the difference between Medicaid and Medicare. You have so many like H, um, HMOs. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's called? Yeah. You know, I'm still again, really, really fuzzy. I really need to fine tune that. Um, whereas here it's like, oh, okay, let's just get you there. Um, you know, even coming home, I'm not, I, even though I, right now I'm paying health insurance through the school, I'm still comforted knowing that gosh forbid something happened here. I don't think like it would be as I know for sure, it wouldn't be as destructive gosh forbid if I had gone to the U S um, and gotten injured there. This is why I tell all of my Canadian friends, even if you're going down to the border, you know, just even for a day doing a day shopping, get, um, health insurance. You can get it through your bank or like through other sort of private um, agencies. Cover yourself for that day. We hear horror stories all the time in Canada. Somebody went, you know, just down to, to Spokane or, or um, you know, Seattle and, and just went shopping. They got terribly sick. And this is hundreds and thousands of dollars um, uh, for medical care. And, uh, you know, insurance is no longer going to cover this. And, and you're just left to foot the spill. Like it, it's um, always, always been a bit, be safe than sorry type of situation. Um, but, you know, I don't, uh, because I'm not terribly educated around, you know, um, especially around costs, I, I, I can't speak to it too, too much, but um, like it just, you know, I, I guess the most alarming thing is sadly, yeah, you know, it, it is a sense that healthcare again is very, very much a privilege in this country, um, as opposed to a right. Because so many times in my mind, I just default, well, why don't they, you, you know, do X, Y, and Z? And it's like, no, that that sort of access doesn't exist here. Um, it's a lot of hoops, um, expensive hoops to to kind of jump through. And gosh forbid, if you live with a chronic illness. Um, you know, they're expensive already to, to get proper care for that. Um, and in time, um, yeah, in Canada and and in the U S as well, um, because a lot of people kind of look to, um, sort of like non-traditional modalities, like things like acupuncture, massage, Mm -hmm. um, but these aren't necessarily covered by insurance. So you are again, kind of paying out of pocket and, you know, again, when you're living with chronic or a life-threatening illness like it can become like a second job just to take good care of yourself with it um so yeah you're dealing with a lot um all of a sudden your income is going down um but now it, you know costs have now increased but you, you know in canada we have um opportunities where you can uh, apply early for your your pension um you know can kind of get money through there um Again, I'm, I'm not quite sure how it really works in the, in the U.S., but I just know when I sort of, you know, educate my American friends like, oh, well, in Canada, you can kind of do this. The look on their face is like, oh, my gosh, no, like you just you can't all of a sudden have some comfort knowing that that you're going to get some financial assistance for your health care. Um, you know, I don't want to sound, again, very judgmental um, because I know this is always a thing between our, our countries here. But, um, 
yeah, again, my takeaway is just, again, if you are traveling to the U.S., make sure you, you get travel in, or healthcare insurance because, again, life is too unpredictable and the last thing you need is an obnoxious uh, hospital bill. Yeah. You know, I hear, uh, I hear a lot on both sides of the argument as far as uh, universal health care versus a privatized health care system like we have here versus, you know, Medicaid and Medicare for everyone. Um, and I struggle with it, you know, there's goods and bads with, with all the systems, you know, you hear with uh, socialized, um, you know, universal health care that great, everybody gets health care, but maybe the quality goes down, or maybe there's a much longer line, uh, you know, waiting period in order to get the, the assistance, uh, low, you know, lower quality, you don't get, or maybe you don't get a choice in doctor. Um, with privatized healthcare, mm -hmm. like, yeah, maybe you get the best doctors, maybe uh, the service, maybe you don't have to wait in line, you can get your surgery, like the, the very next week, but it's extremely expensive, and uh, it's out of certain people's price ranges. Um, you know, I'm, I can remember a time in my life when I was out of school, right? So when we're in school, we are forced uh, to pay for insurance through the school, which I also don't like that either. <laughs> um, but there was a time when I was not in school and uh, I didn't have any health insurance. And here I am um, competing and training in my martial arts and my uh, athletics. And I remember my mindset being completely different than what it is when I do have insurance. Like right now I have insurance and um, I'm not super worried about injuries. I know that injuries happen, but I also know that I'm covered when it does happen. When I was training and competing and I did not have insurance because I couldn't afford it, my attitude and my mentality in training was totally different. I would not take the kind of risks that I needed to, um, I would not, uh, I would not even be able to pursue my own happiness to the, to the fullest extent, because I had to worry, like, am I going to get hurt today? I cannot afford another surgery. Like, oh, wait, my friend wants me to go rock climbing or on a, on a big hike. Oh, I can't do that. Because what if I slip and fall and I like, hurt myself? Like it was such a, it was such a barrier to personal happiness because I did not have, like, I didn't have an assurance that I was going to be taken care of. And that's terrible. Like I would, that's why I would love uh, some sort of universal healthcare, um, you know, if it could be done, if it could be done well, and it could be done right. And I think we have a lot to learn from countries like yours in, in regards to that. Um, what do you think about other, other uh, issue, other rights issues between our countries? So, um, so for instance, congratulations, uh, I think Canada decriminalized all drugs uh, or legalized cannabis or, you know, um, countrywide. I think that's awesome. Do you, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So that's something that we're still fighting, you know, a, a huge drug war here in the United States and um, hopefully in my lifetime and hopefully I can contribute to um, the ending of that war that has caused so many deaths and incarcerations. Um, you know, now that I think about it, out of all the wars that the United States has ever been involved in, World War II, World War I, Vietnam, I'm thinking maybe the drug war has had, uh, it's, it's certainly been the most expensive war we'd, we've ever fought, um, but it might, might be the war that has um, like, uh, affected the most people negatively. That's interesting to even think about. Um, but yeah, talk, talk to me about... Um, yeah, no, I can definitely... 
Oh, no, sorry. Sorry. No, I, I was just agreeing with you that, right, you know, so much money has gone into to that drug war. Um, but but it would be very interesting to, yeah, see what exactly how the outcomes be, how, how yeah, what have been the outcomes of that. Um, and the irony is, is uh, right now I'm taking this exceptional social work course um, on uh, working with uh, service members mm. um, and military families and the devastating statistics of how many um service members are struggling with addiction um, due to trauma, you know, experienced in, in, um, in combat or even, you know, not in combat, but at least, you know, just from separation from family um, and, and having to do endure like such a quick adjustment in such a short time. So um, yeah, you know, it, it's interesting how uh, these, you know, courageous individuals fight for their country um, they come back with, with these uh, terrible uh, addictions, need for support, um, and are they really getting what uh, should be allotted to them 100% in terms of um, healthcare? Uh, so, yeah, sorry, just kind of going a little full circle there with um, all of these wars um, and who exactly is winning. Yeah. No, but between our, our two countries, right? Uh, and this, I bring this up mostly, I'm just super curious, but uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day and the the host brought up something that I hadn't even thought about, um, which, which I looked into and was true. Um, so here in the United States, you know, we have uh, our Bill of Rights, we have our Declaration of Independence, we have, we have all these things that tell us like, these are rights that you as a citizen have that the government or nobody can take away from you, right? And our first amendment right is uh, freedom of speech, right? We have, we have the freedom to speak and talk in any manner we want and say anything we want and rebel against our government if we want to. Like we can, we can do all that stuff in our country, but Canada does not have a freedom of speech, right? Like, like you guys don't have that up there. Yeah. And, and, you know, if we do, yeah. And if we by chance do it, it's not as explicit or um, sort of reminded amongst the population um, as it is often kind of, you know, of course is uh, here in, or in the U S where right. You, you have that right. Um, I, I don't know whether it's culture or upbringing, but we're, we also have a great understanding that there's consequences to what we say. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to how hateful speech is not tolerated as at all. One thing, sadly, that the U.S. is devoid is, of is that we have a multicultural act that was implemented by um, Prime Minister Trudeau, basically saying you're going to be in this country and you're going to see people from different walks of life completely look different from you and 100% you are to respect them you know and and we are learned we are taught this at a very very young age like it's in our elementary school curriculum um not to mention we are amongst such a diverse group of students you know it's almost like silly if you try to to, to kind of be a racist not to say it doesn't exist in Canada 100% it does um as the world is definitely seeing right now uh due to our terrible mistreatment of indigenous uh communities um you know as uh Sadly, more and more um, unmarked graves are being discovered on old residential schools. 
Um, we can certainly get to, to that back to that as well. But um, again, I just want to say that Canada Canada isn't as whimsical and you know perfect as of course you know we hope it is and kind of how it is spun in other countries. We definitely have our problems, but yeah, you know it, it's just. Um, almost like, again, we're, we're really taught that we have a responsibility to our peers and to our neighbors. Um, and it, 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 again, it shouldn't matter what culture you come from. This is Canada. We are a melting pot. This is the norm. And it's, this is how it's always going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I take the time to explain to, to individuals, we don't have states, we have provinces and territories and, you know, um, our territories are, um, highly populated with indigenous communities, you know, um, how we created a, a new territory, I think in the nineties, um, Nunavut and, you know, and, and it's just like, it's such an interesting, you know, concept to people who weren't, you know, born and raised in Canada when it's so in, ingre- ingrained in our, um, in our upbringing, like it was such an interesting experience to see um, this new territory that was, you know, emerged in our country and, and what um, types of communities and people, you know, resided there. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, to this day, my, my friends, especially in Canada, are just, you know, a beautiful rainbow of people. It's, um, it's, it's a lot of diversity. And I think, you know, uh, when I when we talk in class and things like that, that's one thing that I do bring up was just sort of that culture shock mm-hmm. of not seeing people that look like me. I'm, I'm, I'm Indian. Um, uh, yeah. And not having that a part of your every day mm-hmm. that, that was uh, quite interesting, but um, yeah, you know, again, this is also what makes our, our countries quite unique. Um, but hopefully, you know, we'll, uh, we'll continue to, to have wonderful cultures that, um, are, are in both of our countries because they, they have these are wonderful opportunities to learn about different people and um, values and ethics and rituals. You know, it, it's so interesting um, when we have a good understanding that it's not just us walking this earth. It, it's a bunch of different types of people. Um, so I think that's also quite celebrated and encouraged. You know, I can think of a lot of multicultural types of events in you know in everything from like elementary to high school. Um, getting an opportunity to visit, you know, different places of worship. Um, yeah, it's very ingrained in us that, um, we, yeah, that there's diversity and it's something to be, um, in, you know, celebrated as opposed to be scared of. Yeah, I think uh, at least what I'd like to see here in the United States is almost like, a, you know, a mixing of the two of what's going on currently. Like, so I, I love in the United States, you know, how hardcore we are about our freedoms and our rights, right? Like that, that's what makes America, America. Um, and I'm very proud of that, right? So I do believe like, you should be able to say whatever you want, whenever you want. And, and especially if you are resisting um, power structures that are oppressive, right? You should be able to, speak up and not have to worry about someone locking you up or killing you because of it. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, we need a heavy dose of what you guys are doing up in Canada, but, you know, we should be able to say whatever we want. And we're definitely taught that, but we're not so much taught like, but you also, you need to be respectful with your speech. <laughs> you know, we, we leave that part out of it. And I think the most, the most that I got growing up um, was, uh, you know, someone telling me, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. 
you know, and right. that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's our version of uh, be respectful with your speech. But, you know, I think, I think both systems are great and they both need a little bit more overlap when it comes to that. And, and here in the U.S., we certainly need to open our eyes a lot more to uh, diversity of, you know, not just ethnicity and race and, and gender and, and identity and all these things, but, you know, open up our, our ideas to, you know, we have a diversity of ideas. We have a diversity of opinions. We have a diversity of perspectives and all need to be respected. You don't have to adopt or, or believe or, or, um, you know, agree with somebody else and, and, and how they label themselves, but you certainly need to respect them in their own, um, sovereignty, you know, and, and, and trust that they're going to respect you in that too. So I love that in, in Canada, you guys like, you make that a part of your culture. I love that you guys have written that into, uh, into, you know, some of your laws that, you know, if you come here, you are going to respect other people with, with your speech. I love that. Um, yeah. I, I mean, again, it, it's on paper. What sure. if people actually practice is, is certainly down to them. Um, but I think one thing that both of our countries can certainly work on is, is giving respect to those that built our countries. Right. Mm. Um, so for us, you know, it, it's indigenous, communities uh, for the U.S. I, I mean, d- it's completely different walks of life, you know, um, from Italians to Jewish communities, like y- everybody paid, played a significant part in the growth of the U.S. And, and so, you know, again, where's the harm in just giving credit where credit is due? Right. Um, but everybody, you know, wants sort of that piece of the pie and wants their own recognition. Um, but, you know, you've also come a long way again, uh, you know, from the removal of, of certain, you know, statues that, um, um, you know, that were kind of celebrating maybe individuals that perhaps, you know, cause more harm than, than good. Um, you're, I, I, you know, there's great social change, you know, uh, certainly going on in the U.S., um, certainly a lot more that needs to happen. But um, this is what happens when, again, individuals are, are finding their voice, um, and again, they're recognizing that, no, this is not making for a happy life. Um, and, and there are certain things, um, and especially speaking up, that, um, that they need to, to engage in and more power to them. Um, so let's, let's talk. So, a so bit. yeah, slowly. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you said. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, gun rights across borders, right? So here in the U.S., it's literally written into our uh, Bill of Rights, the Second Amendment. You're allowed to keep and bear arms. And I, you know, people will debate what that means. Is it for hunting? Is it for oppressive government? Is it for, you know, whatever reason? Is it just for recreation and fun? Whatever. Um, what, are the, what are the laws uh, regarding firearms in Canada? I have no idea. I'm a huge gun advocate too. Oh so. gosh, again. That, yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Uh, you know, I can speak for myself and and a lot of people I know, none of us are are interested, sadly, or mm. you know, maybe fortunately in guns, you know. So we, it's not something I've ever sought out. I, I know like of a few people that maybe know somebody else that has gone like hunting in British Columbia. Um, you know, I'm quite sure it goes on in the Yukon and and, and where and whatnot, but you know, that's 
sort of more the context that we we hear about guns is like right for hunting. Um, that's certainly not to say that we don't have gun violence ourselves, but to attain a gun, I wouldn't tell, I wouldn't know the first thing of, of what to do. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I'm quite sure a criminal record check is, um, uh, is required. Um, I don't know if, if an emotional health one is or of a, a medical background check. Um, it's just, it's not a part of, I think, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think majority, it's really not in our, you know, sort of every day. So there's um, no like, gun or, or necessarily on, one that we were. Yeah, there's no gun stores on every. Uh, oh, gosh. Here in the US. <laughs> no, I remember, um, I'm originally from Calgary, Alberta, and they opened up this, is it Billy Bass store? something like that. And I think it caused like a bit of a commotion because they were selling rifles. And um, I, I, again, I, I certainly don't even know to this day if they still do, but that's sort of like the knee jerk reaction of like, oh my gosh, how are you making these so readily available? Whereas, you know, at a certain time, I think in the West you could walk into a Walmart, um, you know, and get a gun and ammunition. Um, like I, I, I hear you have to go to a specific gun store, I'm assuming. Um, I'm hoping there's some sort of rigorous, uh, you know, application process to make sure that this is going in the, in the hands of um, somebody, you know, that, that requires it, hopefully mostly for like recreational purposes. But, you know, I, I again, growing up, my household, a lot of my friends, we didn't have guns in our house, you know, to protect our, us. Um, it wasn't, I don't even think a thought you know, for, for most families. Um, yeah. So that was a bit of a culture shock. I remember being in class with you one day and you were telling me, um, I think a university maybe in Wyoming where they provide, um, lockers for students specifically for, you know, their rifles and whatnot. Um, so that they, you know, it was more conducive to go hunting after class. And I'm sitting there like, I go home and watch Netflix after school. <laughs> yeah, okay, I guess there are certain individuals that need to go hunting right after school. Um, again, not even a, a thought in my mind. Uh, it took me quite a, f a few months to learn that in Colorado, or I guess on our campus, that's open carry, right? You can carry a gun if you... If you, um, if you I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, it's it's flip-flopped a couple times, yeah. But regardless, okay. yeah, but again, so I, you know, mm -hmm. but I went home, you know, that winter break and I was like, oh, you know, hey, dad and other family members, like, guess what I learned about my school and everybody's just horrified because again, this isn't a part of our norm, but it's not even something that, you know, you think about you, 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 you take, you, you know, you, you let your kids go to school and they go to learn and then they come back and you don't think that this is, you know, any part of their culture um, where, right, you know, it, it can be quite prevalent um, in the U.S. So, um, you know, I, I can just only do what I do, which is like, I, I don't own a gun. I'm not interested in, in acquiring one, um, but I, I have to respect the fact that I'm in a country where you have the right to attain one and to carry one. Um, and you know, if I'm uncomfortable with it, well, I, I do have the option. I can come back to Canada. Right. Um, but I, that, that's, you know, certainly not what's allotted to, to all, you know, us citizens. Um, so I, I certainly can't speak for somebody that, that lives there, you know, uh, full times, but, uh, yeah, you know, that was just a, a learning curve we'll say. Um, but I know it now and, and, you know, 
whether, yeah, I, I certainly, I don't let it try to affect me, but yeah, it, it's a, a pretty alarming difference. We'll say that for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's plenty of United States citizens who are in a, you know, not the same position as you, because we all grew up around uh, this culture, but uh, in a similar situation in that, uh, you know, I have so many friends who have never, never fired a gun, never had a gun in their house, never, you know, that they, they have a distaste for firearms. Um, it's interesting, though, most people that I, I know and who speak of having a distaste for firearms, as soon as they go and they try shooting in a controlled setting, they come out of that experience just loving it, uh, you know, for some reason, like like the feeling that it gives them. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up around firearms. Uh, my mom taught me how to shoot when I was four years old. Um, you know, I shot my entire uh uh, youth. Um, I was a part of, I was the, the varsity captain of my high school shooting team. I went to a military high school. And so we, we went and we did competitive shooting against like the Naval Academy and, and stuff like that. And, um, and, you know, now it's a big part of my life. I, I still am a gun advocate. I, I carry one with me. Uh, you know, I have a concealed carry permit and uh, I carry one in my vehicle. I carry one on me when I go into, uh, sketchy places like right after that um that uh grocery store shooting in boulder uh over yeah. the summer right the king supers shooting every time i would go to king supers i would carry my gun with me because i'm not gonna allow myself to become a victim in a situation like that like if i have the power to stop someone who's gonna do harm to other people like I want to be able to step up and, and do that um and so that that's kind of the culture that I grew up in now um so <laughs> two totally different cultures, but <laughs> I, I think it's interesting. And still, like, I, I can still have respect for people who don't want anything to do with guns. It's not like, I feel like you're less of a person or like you're, you're, you know, sometimes I might feel like you're, you're missing out on some things, but, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I still respect your opinion, you know, and um, that's, that's the thing is like, all I want is, is other people to respect uh, the rights and the, and the, the opinions of gun owners too, as long as we're responsible with them and we're not hurting anyone else. And 99% of gun owners in this country are responsible gun owners. Most of the shootings that happen are not people who acquired them legally and they, they're not people who should be fit to have a firearm. Um, but I'm glad that so many people have them here because all, all sorts of these crimes, these gun crimes get stopped by, uh, responsible mm -hmm. gun owners who take action in the moment. And those people don't and get enough. We're just we're saturated here. with it. it. It's gun violence after gun violence. So right. So, so those that um, right are responsible with their firearm, unfortunately have to carry the burden of those that are, are kind of, you know, ruining it for the rest of you. So, um, you know, and I respect the fact that you're trying to advocate that no, not all of us are, are, you know, being um, harmful to others with this. Um, so, right. You know, we can, we're, we're sort of agreeing, but we don't necessarily have to, to necessarily do what the other person is doing. Um, I, I don't think I will ever own a gun, you know, never say never, but that's certainly not, you know, something that I've ever thought of again, cause I can't even speak to, to even how to get one or even what the laws are. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it's, uh, they just, yeah, I say it just takes like a few bad apples, right. Just to kind of, um, put a sour taste in, in everybody's mouth. So, 
uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's not the, the good gun owners that make the news. It, it's the ones that um, sadly made a, a, a terrible decision. Well, if you ever, uh, if you ever want to just give it a try, uh, let me know and I will be more than happy to take you to a legal <laughs> gun range and um, you can shoot a target in a totally safe environment and I would be happy to do that. But um, no pressure. I was the kid who played Duck Hunt and took the gun right to the television. Oh. Like, I would just be awful at that. But I do appreciate the, the invitation. Again, you know, never say never. Um, you know, it, it would definitely be, um, uh, again, another culture shock for me. But um, yeah, you know, it's uh, both our countries, you know, have lots of wonderful things um uh, about them and then also one's things yeah that, that i'm sure we both wish we could change but um thank goodness for social workers like us who again can recognize that um good change can happen um but it does take you know advocacy and and education um and really just resilience you know just keep fighting that good fight um, that's one of the reasons, you know, I was drawn to working um, f- with uh, incarcerated individuals because my mind always goes to the underdog and again, who kind of needs uh, most of that support. So, um, yeah, again, I think we're both um, well prepared to, to do well with our education um, and with the connections that we have in, in hoping that both of our countries prosper and, and do well and be good. Yeah. Be good. Um, and, and the only reason why I, I brought this up today, this uh, this comparison conversation between the two countries is because number one, I'm interested and I've always loved, uh, I've, I've always wanted to go to Canada. Um, in recent years, I've always uh, wanted to move up to Canada and retire up there somewhere in a cabin in the mountains. Um, and the thing that struck me the most was uh, having you in class and, you know, amidst tons of like uh, social movements going on, social tragedies happening, uh, pandemic happening, um, an election with with a highly controversial person, all happening in the last two years. And having your perspective in class being from Canada and having you speak up and just saying like, some of this stuff is horrendous, what's going on in your country. This kind of stuff would never happen in Canada. Uh, it really, It really helped ground me and remind me that, hey, the way we do it here in America is not how they do it in other countries, that other countries actually do things a lot differently and do things a lot better in a lot of ways. And so that's really what what brought, uh, what spurred this conversation up and what brought my interest into bringing it into our conversation today. Um, but, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. We have about 12 minutes left. And I want to ask you about your experience in traveling um, between our two countries, right? You came here in, uh, let's see, we started in 2019. So you came here for, uh, to start a PhD in 2019. Yeah. And then all this stuff happened, right? Uh, the pandemic, especially, um, but all sorts of other social upheavals happened that prevented you from going back to Canada. And I can't count the number of times you, you would come on our Zoom calls and say, you know, I had a plane ticket to go home, but now it's canceled. <laughs> and, you know, now I don't know what's going on and they may not, you know, uh, yeah. visa issues and all sorts of things. So, yeah, can you share with me and, and with the audience sort of what was your experience in uh, this huge long journey to get back to Canada, which 
you're right now in Canada and recording, and I'm so happy to see you in your home country. And I hope you can make it back. But uh, what a, what a trip! Yeah, yeah that's going to be a whole other trip. So yeah, I mean, the past two years have been quite a journey. So even before I came um, to uh, Colorado the first time, yeah, back in um, August 2019. Sadly, my mom had suddenly passed away just a couple months before that. So I was already sort of in a state of mind of, okay, um, right, you know, I'm leaving my my widowed dad, my heart is breaking, but he, um, both my parents have always been super supportive of me, you know, um, attaining this degree. So, you know, this is very much even to this day, you know, I carry both of them with me and, and you know, doing this for them as well as myself. But um, so, yeah, so that was already sort of resonating, of course, on my heart. So. I had one opportunity to go home um, in between COVID and when we first started our program, uh, I went home for winter break. So this was right before, you know, COVID kind of uh, emerged. So I left um, um, in January of 2020 and said to my dad, like, uh, don't worry, dad, you know, these next few months are going to go by really fast and then I'll be back in the summer. Because, right, you know, at this time, of course, this is the last thing anybody's thinking of. So, right, return. Um, and then, right, COVID emerged and, you know, travel restrictions started to, to go into place naturally. Um, so in time, Canada imposed, um, you know, their, their own quarantine act. And a part of it was, um, you know, this was only going to be open to, to essential people, um, you know, whether it had to do with like, you know, prof- professionally or personally, th- there were certain criteria of kind of getting through and it was quite, you know, a pretty small list at that time. So I knew at that time, okay, I'm not really making this list of essential people. Like I can go to Canada because I live there, but if I do, I will either have to pay over $2,000 to spend, um, uh, Uh, at a mandatory stay in a government approved hotel to quarantine before I can go to to my destination or take a $3,000 fine if I go straight home. So, you know, I I always pride myself that, oh, I would never put a price on my loved ones. Well, clearly I did. I am but a lowly, you know, graduate student. This is not something that I have, you know, extra cost to cover. And I I need to really express that I still know I'm in a very privileged position with this because not a lot of people, again, you know, have the the type of resources that that I can access. And so I want to make sure that, you know, I understand and I have great gratitude that, you know, even though this was quite, you know, a journey, I was still able to take it to, to come here. So on top of the, the COVID restrictions that were going on, I also faced the dilemma as an international student when Trump imposed that any student, because at that time, you know, we were going hybrid, that if you were taking classes online, you were no longer considered an international student and you had to go back to your home country. So, you know, we're in a sticky position because we're not going in person because this is going to to harm our health. Um, But at the same time, we are now told that essentially you have to get out of the country because you're not considered either an F1 or a J1 student. So that, you know, all of a sudden became quite terrifying because this is now the government saying, okay, you have to get out of the country. So, uh, you know, that was resolved what seemed like, you know, within a week that no, the government took that away. Um, our schools and schools across the, the U.S. Were, were great in advocating for the students and saying, absolutely not, we're not agreeing to this. Um, 
and and so eventually in time that that disappeared um but to this day um so canadians who study in the u.s actually don't need a visa um but what we do have is something that's called an i-20 it's a form that stipulates you know where we're doing our our school that we have the funds to cover our tuition you know and this is the contact person to to kind of confirm that they are enrolled in this, this specific program so now on with that um i also have to carry a letter um, that specifies to the the officer, the the customs officer, their U.S. customs officer, explaining to them, you know, that just to remind them that this law has been removed. That even if it's hybrid, students are still considered students. Um, you know, uh, it even stipulates on there that this uh, document has been given to me electronically due to COVID. So, you know, please accept it. So, um, you know, the, the schools are doing great a job in kind of covering all your bases. But even though that has been gone in a sense, we, we still sort of live with that fear of we don't know if this could change again or, or if we, we are going to encounter an officer that maybe for whatever reason isn't educated around this. So, again, you know, it, it's always a you're always kind of like a little wee bit of anxiety before you kind of approach that officer and, and kind of make your your um, statement as to why, you know, you need to kind of enter their country. Um, so, right. So again, going back there with the COVID, so that gets resolved, but again, you know, the COVID restrictions are still there. So, you know, I just had to wait patiently. I guess it was my own stubbornness of like, I cannot justify paying this. Um, you know, as much as I want to see, you know, my dad and my best friend and all of the, you know, my loved ones, um, I, I just got to wait this out. So luckily, or, uh, you know, unfortunately, our degree is a bit isolating in a sense that it, it's we're reading, we're writing, you know, I'm often kind of by myself, um, outside of our class time, it's quite silent. So I'm just kind of have my head in the books. And so, um, you know, was able to kind of get through that first summer, and then we were thrown back into school. So that's kind of a, a delightful um, distraction. But I started to get more of an itch um, after our courses kind of ended in May, because now it's the summer. This is where again, you know, I, I it's my norm to spend it, you know, home in, in Canada. Um, so luckily, um, in time at the beginning, uh, starting July 5th, they Canada opened it up and said, um, okay, there's this uh, list. If you make the kind of, if you hit the check marks on here, then you're exempt from the quarantine. So at this time now I'm eligible because I'm a student. And so they understand, okay, you're going through the border because you live here and then you got to go back. Um, and uh, being fully vaccinated um, and having a negative COVID test 72 hours prior to boarding. So what Canada adopted is they have an app called CanArrive where you have to upload all of this information, um, you know, your, your date that you're traveling, what your destination is, what your quarantine plan is, and you're uploading your vaccination record. Um, and so I did all that. And then I made sure I had a hard copy of my COVID test, um, which was also quite a, 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 a journey in itself. So like I said, you had to get it done 72 hours prior to boarding. So my 72 hours prior landed on July 4th. So there were no COVID testing, um, you know, places open naturally on that day. A lot of places took the fifth off in lieu of that as well. So I ended up having to travel. I drove an hour. Um, to get this COVID test to, to ensure that I had it within time uh, prior to, to boarding. And luckily, you know, fabulous people there um, who were able to get it back to me within 24 hours. So I had, you know, security of having that. 
Um, so, right, you know, it, it can sound a bit tedious, but I understand the, these are safety precautions. They're not trying to let anybody in. Um, so, right, I had kind of all my ducks in an order by the time um, I, I could go. Oh, also, which also made this fun. So first, uh, Canada is say, said that, right, this is going to start on July 5th. So as soon as, soon as I heard July 5th, I booked a ticket. Then it later comes out, it's starting July 5th at midnight. So my original date was um, on July 5th, but in the afternoon. So had I stuck with that original flight, I would have had to quarantine. Like this is how, you know, rigid they were. Like even shy at a, if you landed there just a couple hours before it went into um, fruition, then like you, you still had to go into the hotel. So that was a whole other thing. I had to cancel that ticket and then book a whole new one. Um, so I ended up getting one just a couple of days after that, just to be safe, gosh forbid, you know, they changed the date again. Um, but when I landed, it, it was pretty expedited. You know, I explained to the officer, uh, you know, I'm Canadian, I'm just home from school. Um, you know, there's loved ones that I want to see and, you know, very delightful, let me through. So this past month, I, I've been enjoying, you know, my time here, you know, catching up with loved ones, um, uh, you know, and, and just, you know, this is my home and, and just experiencing that again, because um, when that option was ripped away from me, it was just, it was so difficult. And as I put on you and the rest of our lovely, you know, cohort members, you know, you know we would explain what's, what's going well and what's not. And I was just a broken record. Like, I just want to go home. I want to go home because I didn't have the freedom to, you know, that was now what I believe to be my right, which was now taken. I mean, technically, again, I could go home, but I just didn't want to pay that obnoxious fine. I felt like that was just unnecessary and, and really unfair. So also, again, my stubbornness kind of coming into play. So um, so now that I'm here, uh, I just want to also point out, you know, and again, not to, to necessarily uh, judge, but going through the airports in Canada, because I, I flew between Calgary and um, Vancouver, they, they're checking my temperature. And I don't want to, to speak ill, but I don't recall anybody checking my temperature when I left Denver. It was, I, I you know, everybody was wearing a mask and, and, you know, security was security, but I don't recall getting my temperature taken. So that was very interesting to see um, here in Canada. But please don't hold that against me. I just don't have any recollection, but it, it was pretty apparent here. Uh, when I um, was traveling, yeah, within Canada, that, that temperature checks were, were uh, definitely in place. So yeah, so I'm here now. So again, what I have to ensure is that I, again, need to get a, a negative COVID test, and it has to, sorry, be a PCR test. So these are the nasal swabs. So very specific ones, it can't be the, the saliva one. Um, yeah, I had to pay $200 out of pocket, which is again, okay, because this is what I knew I was walking into, you know, uh, having to wanting to come home. Uh, yeah. So getting affidavit or some sort of form um, where I am attesting to the U.S. Um, that um, uh, what I am saying is true, that I got a negative test that, you know, I'm not having symptoms. Um, you know, they're again, just uh, crossing their T's and dotting their I's and ensuring that people that are coming into the country um, are again taking the, the, the proper precautions um, to make it safe for everybody. So again, like it, it, I'm hoping this isn't you know coming across as complaining. It was <laughs> it was took some time and it was expensive. Definitely my most expensive trip home, but um, worth it in the end. You know I, I feel quite revitalized. Um, 
And this is, again, what we take advantage of, of we just assume we're going to see that person again. Um, Having especially on, excuse me, almost two years without seeing my dad, you know, ripping my heart into too many pieces. So, um, you know, we, we, right, when we said goodbye to each other this time, we didn't know again when we would get to see each other. So, (coughs) pardon me we made sure it was a a very meaningful, much more meaningful goodbye because we didn't want to take advantage of, yeah, what if by chance this is the last time we get to say goodbye. Yeah, I was, um, thank you for sharing that. I mean, what a horrendous uh, process you had to go through. Um, I did hear, um, you know, I'll keep this short. I, I did hear, and I don't watch the news, so this might not be true, but I, I heard from somebody that um, Canada is much more uh, closed off right now as far as like COVID restrictions. Um, you know, a lot of the U.S. has opened back up. Um, is that true? Is, is can- I mean, you did mention the, the temperature taking in the airport. So that tells me that Canada is a little more um, uh, concerned about about the virus, and I I I hate those thermometer things. I refuse to let people point those at my face. Um, I have them pointed oh, at my yeah. wrist. Uh, I but that's because I have a, a specific uh, trauma from my teenage years where I had somebody put a gun directly onto my forehead. Um, you know, in a in an aggressive manner. So having anyone put that thing like right 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 on my forehead is uh, triggering to me, and I'm I you know I. <laughs> And what an interesting insight. I didn't even think of that for anybody that may have experienced trauma, right, from a gun to the head. You know, you just assume like, okay, right, this is just to do with our health and and off we go for you so you don't have to be triggered in such a heinous sense. Well, and I go, I go to places all the time where they just, you know, they just assume and, and put it up on your forehead. And like, my initial reaction is like to duck out of the way and like slap their hand out of the way, just out of instinct, you know? Um, and then I ask them nicely, like, no, put that on my wrist, please. And I, sometimes I have to explain to them why. And, and but this isn't about that. I, I, uh, my question was, uh, yeah, about Canada and, and your restrictive, uh, restrictions with COVID. Are you guys, um, still closed down quite a bit up there? Um, yeah, you know, somebody brought to my attention, and I guess I didn't realize it when I was there, but the, the airports are, are quite bare. Mm. Um, you're definitely not seeing as many people traveling through. And, and I think a big part of it has to do with the quarantine act that, that Canada specifically has. Um, I think still, you know, they, they're not allowing flights from India and Pakistan, um, but it's also my understanding. Um, I know in uh, starting August 9th or 6th, so I don't know for sure, but they, they'll be allowing um, <clears throat> fully vaccinated Americans uh, to come in. Um, and I think it, the, the gradual plan is to eventually let all international travelers, so hopefully, you know, the ban to, to India and Pakistan will also be lifted. So, um, yeah, around traveling, um, what I've noticed, you know, here, re- regardless if uh, masks are um, uh, optional or not, most people are choosing, it looks like, to wear their mask. Um, this is, <laughs> this is, was really funny to me, but, you know, also speaks to, um, 
maybe, you know, certain generations and, and how certain precautions that they're taking. Um, I love my dad so much. He's one of my best friends. But when I first arrived to Calgary, he kindly asked me to sit in the back seat with my mask on. And so I just thought like, oh, this is very very interesting. Um, but I totally understood, you know, he he's in his 70s, he's in a much more vulnerable position and, and family or not, he's making sure, you know, that that he's definitely, um, you know, taking precautions and, and taking good care of his health. And I know, absolutely, he's taking a gamble by letting me into his home. Um, and, you know, knock on wood, hopefully I did not, you know, harm my dad in any way, um, you know, in order to see him. But um, yeah, you know, I get it. I think everybody is um, allotted, especially at this time to be in their own comfort zone. So um, again, it's our duty to, to kind of protect ourselves and, and ensure that, um, you know, we're hopefully being as safe as possible. Um, but yeah, I'm not seeing sort of um, that freedom I was kind of when I was back in Colorado of seeing a lot of people, a lot of places without a mask. However, with that said, um, my hometown of Calgary is known for something called the Calgary Stampede. This is uh, touted as the greatest outdoor show on, on earth. It's a rodeo, it's a midway, you know, lots of uh, games and good eats and all that stuff and so they had it you know Calgary still had it and and people went and and uh, I looked at pictures and there weren't masks um and yeah so again it is really their own they, they were still having precautions of you know temperature taking and and taking tests and things like that but somehow again there's always something that kind of slips and, and unfortunately there went to others. And so you take a gamble, right? Like I am all, um, I think we're all itching for that, but we also have to, I guess, um, uh, understand that we're in a more of a new normal now. And there are certain things that we still need to do. This pandemic is by no means over. Um, even today, the CDC, you know, released that um, you can still get the Delta variant, even if you are fully vaccinated. Um, so we're not out of the woods yet, but I get, you know, needing that, that one moment of, uh, let me just feel normal again, but gosh forbid, you know, something like that, you know, comes at the cost of your health. So, um, like, I think it's just a bit of a mix, but personally speaking, because I'm traveling, I'm not going out too much. Um, my, my intent to kind of come here was to see loved ones, <clears throat> Luckily, I lived in, in beautiful BC for almost 10 years. So I've kind of done, you know, the sightseeing and not uh, needing to do that again. So um, like you mentioned before, you know, it, sometimes fear gets in the way of happiness. Um, so, right, you know, I could have maybe made more opportunities to kind of go outside and, and do more public things. But at the same time, I'm being very mindful that I'll be returning back to the U.S., um, I'm getting a wonderful opportunity to teach students, I, gosh forbid, you know, I, I put them in harm's way. So, you know, there's also things that are, are ensuring or guiding me to make sure I, I'm being as safe as I can, because at the end of the day, I only have control over myself. So, um, yeah, it really is just doing the best that you can. But um, yeah, I don't know that there's, I wouldn't say as kind of a free as, as the US, but at the same time, Canada is only kind of more recently become fully vaccinated, whereas we had a bit of a, a head start over there. So I'm not sure if it's more reflective of that, where it's taking them a bit more time to kind of feel okay. But um, 
you know, it might even feel like a temporary feeling, especially as this new variant is becoming more prevalent, especially in the US that, that maybe it's like, oh, we, we can't feel that freedom just yet because we're seeing that it's not, it's certainly not resolving. Um, that story about your dad was hilarious, putting you in the backseat. <laughs> yeah. like, Thanks, dad. You haven't seen me in two years and now I'm subjugated to the, to the, <laughs> two years, yeah. um, well, Shivani, I want to say With thank both you. of our yeah. on. Yeah, that's hilarious. Um, <laughs> I want to say thank you again for taking the time out today to join the podcast and thank you for, you know, spending some time and, and talking a little bit and letting me pick your brain about, uh, end of life and about, uh, you know, Canada, U.S. differences and your uh, approaches to, to consciousness and how you help other people um, sort of come to terms with their own experiences of consciousness uh, as their consciousness is about to leave their physical body. So thank you so much for coming and sharing all that with me. Um, yeah, I just want to say thank you. Oh, thank you. Again, this was my utmost pleasure uh, when you were first uh, describing your podcast to us and you, you said like, oh, and I hope to have each of you on. I, I got excited from day one. So thank you so much, especially for your patience and, and kind of, a, <clears throat> excuse me, making sure that we both found time in our schedule for this. And yeah, you just keep using your voice um, for good. You know, this is education, it's advocacy, um, and it's uh, forcing people to think about things that may be right. You know, they, they didn't want to because it was making them uncomfortable, but uncomfortable is good. You know, it, it's making you feel alive. Um, and really, again, you know, being intentional in our um, purpose and how we view the world and especially how we embrace our sense of self. So I hope you and, and your lovely uh, listeners just continue to take the best of care. Yeah. Well, thank you. And uh, to all you listeners out there, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, I will leave Shivani's um, bio information uh, for Colorado State University in the description for the podcast, as well as uh, some ways that you can reach out to her and make contact if you want further information or if you want to network with her. Um, I apologize to all you listeners out there if, if you're experiencing any uh, poor audio quality. Uh, we were, I don't know, messing with a little bit of technical issues throughout the podcast, and that's been happening a little bit more to me recently. Um, who knows? Uh, who knows? Maybe those conspiracy theories about uh, COVID and 5G are coming true, and it's disrupting our, uh, disrupting our internet service. Who knows? Probably not. But anyway... Thanks again, Giovanni, and uh, we'll see you all later. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you. Wow, what a great show. Thank you so much, Giovanni, for joining us today and having this really awesome conversation, um, talking about your research, uh, talking about you know the idea behind uh, caged consciousness, not just literally caged, but the, the cages that people put on their own consciousness day to day. Uh, talking about your home country of Canada and the, <clears throat> excuse me, and just everything that we, we dug into today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, what a great show. I can't, I just can't say, I can't say anymore. Um, so for those who are listening, remember, if you want to support the show, you can donate by clicking on the uh, link below 
the podcast uh, link and you could donate to the show. It all goes right back in to improve the quality for you. Please also like and share us on social media and go to our Facebook or our YouTube page, uh, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S on YouTube and check out our website, www.mind ops.com. So it's Mind Ops YouTube and Mind Ops uh, online. Go check out that stuff. Um, yeah, until next time, guys, I really appreciate you joining us. And uh, if you took anything from today's podcast, I think the, uh, the biggest message that I took uh, was when Shivani and I were talking about, you know, defining your own life through, uh, the con- through some kind of contemplation on morality uh, or mortality and morality. Yeah, but really contemplating mortality as if it wasn't uh, taboo. Um, it's something we're all going to go through, and we should be thinking about it. Um, we should not be scared of it like uh, we're s- seemingly being sort of trained into thinking about death in that way. There's a very healthy way to think about death. And once you can find um, a healthier way to think about death, it really does open up your life and make it, uh, make it seem more beautiful, make you appreciate things more, and uh, makes you really live into life the way it should be. Okay, well, until next time, this has been your host, Shane LeMaster, and uh, we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.